Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter for us before we study it together. Jonah chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let, man, let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. He did not do it. Lord, we come before you with this text, and we are reminded of your mercy and how great it is, that your mercy is greater than the sins that we've accumulated in our lives. We ask that we study this text, that we have a greater appreciation of who you are, and may we be faithful in our declaration of your word. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. One of the greatest blessings of being a Christian is that we get an opportunity to represent the true and living God. Each day that passes is an opportunity for us to declare the beauty and the majesty of our Savior. It is indeed a privilege because for us as Christians, we know that we've experienced a tremendous amount of grace and mercy. God sent, God sent the Son to die on the cross for us and God the Spirit sealed our salvation and secured us a place in heaven. We are free to live for him, and in the future, we'll be with him forever. And every year at some point, usually in the beginning of the year, we go through this little mini-series, uh, vision, mission, and value of San Francisco Bible Church. In some ways, it's like our New Year's resolution. Uh, the hope is that whatever we teach and reteach and remind is something that we will instill in us for the rest of the year. We teach these things so that we can know what we're doing, where, what we are doing, and where we're going with what we are doing. So for our first in this little series in the year is the mission of SFBC. We get a chance to study that alongside studying an illustration in Scripture of evangelism in Jonah chapter 3. And for me, that's like hitting two birds with one stone. We get to talk about evangelism as well as teaching through a, book in, a, a chapter in the Bible. My hope as one of, the out, one of the pastors here is to always remind, equip, and to encourage us, not just the mission of SFBC, but the mission of all Christians throughout the world. My hope is that each and every single one of us will be filled with the heart of evangelism. 
My hope is that we, could, we go and make disciples of all nations. That's what Christ has commanded the church to do in Matthew 28. And sometimes I think the reason why we forget uh, to do the Great Commission because we assume that God will raise up someone else to do it. God will raise up professional Christians instead of me. God will use the great theologians, or God will use the pastors instead of me. Yet God actually uses the lowly to be his messengers. And each and every single one of us are called to be a messenger of God. And we look at Jonah, we realize and are reminded that God uses all of his people to declare his mercy to those who are indeed in need of his mercy. A background of this book, if you've been with us uh, the last few months, uh, I've been teaching through this book in chapter one. It begins with God giving a commission to Jonah. He tells him to go to this place called Nineveh and declare a message of judgment. And Nineveh was not a place where that, that was, it was a huge place. It was a place at one point with great prominence. But by the time when God summoned Jonah, Nineveh was a place that was in shambles. Uh, there were many civil wars. There was famine going on. And it's because of the state that they were in, God saw, it per- saw that timing as a perfect for them to go and receive his word. So he calls Jonah. He tells him to go to this place and declare judgment. But you remember that Jonah decided not to listen to the Lord. He decided to buy a one-way ticket to a place called Tarshish. Uh, and as he got on the boats and he was go- going over to this place, the Lord hurled a great storm to this boat. And it was, it was rocking the boat and parts of the boats were falling apart. And everyone in the boat, all of the other sailors, were scared to death. They began crying out to their own God. They began uh, pleading with their God and throwing things over so that the boat can stay afloat. And when the captain was looking down to the bottom of the boat to try to find more things to throw overboard, he noticed Jonah sleeping. So then in uh, chapter 6, the captain asked, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so we will not perish. And then everyone in the boat decided, okay, all of the gods that we're crying out to, it's not working. we got to try something else. So they casted lots. They wanted to see which one is not doing their job. And the, lot la- and the lot landed on Jonah. And they asked him, who are you? Where are you from? What is it that you do? And Jonah responded that he is a Hebrew and that he fears the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry lands. Then the sailors became horrified. They realized, like, this is the one that, that this is the, his God is the one that we've offended. We need to be made right with him. So they asked him, what, do, what will it take? What will it take for us to be saved? And Jonah told them, essentially, kill me. The only way for you to be saved is to kill me. And is to kill him by throw him, throwing him over the boat. And this scared them even more. They became horrified. They were like saying, well, we can't do that. So they, they tried to sail back into the shore, but it did not work. They got to the point where they realized that they have to listen to what this prophet has to say. So they, but then they cried out to Yahweh. They cried out and said, do not let us perish on account of this man. They didn't want to throw this person over because if this God, if the, if the God that this prophet worship is this powerful. Perhaps killing him will just make things worse for them. But they, so they asked God to, not, to spare them as they throw him overboard. And they threw Jonah overboard. 
and, uh, and the storm stopped, and each and every single one of the sailors got saved. They realized that Yahweh is a true God, and they began to worship him. And God has shown divine mercy, because remember, just moments ago, all of the sailors in the boat were pagan worshipers. It would have been perfectly fine if God just destroyed the entire boat, and every one, single one of them died. But by his mercy, he provided opportunity for them to be saved. And not only that, but Jonah himself also received mercy. When he, when he went into the water, God called a great fish to swallow Jonah, to keep him alive. And he was in this fish for three days and three nights. And you recall in chapter 2, Jonah realizes what was going on. And he cried out for mercy. This is a teaching for Jonah to experience uh, God's supernatural work in his life. He's able to see how God is willing to save. And it was, he was humbled by this, and he looked to God. And in verse 9 of chapter 2, he, at the end, he says, salvation is from the Lord. And it's because of that humble reaction to what God is doing to him. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up into the, into the dry lands. Now we're here in chapter 3, where Jonah's going to fulfill the task that God has commissioned him to do. If you want to have a greater commitment in your evangelism, if you want to be used by God this year to go and use all 365 days as a faithful evangelist, let this chapter be a helpful guide to you. As we look at this chapter, we'll see three scenes or three events that will help us, that it happens when we share the gospel. And if you shared the gospel before, these three scenes should look familiar to you. These three scenes will give us a guide in how we are to do evangelism. So, when God uses his people to win others to Christ, this is what it looks like. Three scenes that we will see in Jonah chapter 3 that will help illustrate for us a gospel presentation in hopes that the church will fulfill the Great Commission. If you want to be a faithful evangelist, let the scriptures show us what happens when we are faithful in our evangelism. Our first point this morning, the repentant messenger. The repentant messenger, verse 1 to 4. Before I start, I'd like to say that by repentant, I mean, I mean more than just someone coming to Christ and placing their faith uh, in Christ, like from turning from their sin and believing in him. Uh, what I mean by repentant is someone who is already a believer, someone who's already professed to be a, a follower of Christ, knows God's word, but yet refused to listen to him, gets humbled, and is now repentant. Basically, I assume that if you want to be a faithful evangelist, that you are a Christian, that you are a believer of Jesus Christ. You can't be part of God's plan if you're not part of his team. This is what happened to Jonah. Jonah was saved, but he, he disobeyed God's expectation, and he was humbled, and now he's obedient. Verse 1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, notice that this is similar to chapter 1, verse 1. It's nearly identical. But notice in chapter 3, verse 1, it has the word now. It's the finish of the detour that happened in chapter 2. Uh, God put Jonah in this fish for three days, and, God is now, and now he's humbled by it, and now he's going to do what God has commanded him to do. Sometimes the Lord is willing to discipline his people, discipline his children so they can be useful for ministry. They can be even more effective after the Lord disciplines them. You'll notice in this first verse the word second time. Jonah was given a second chance to do what God wants him to do. He's given a second opportunity to go and witness to the people in Nineveh. And it would have been perfectly just 
if Jonah died in the fish in the bottom of the sea because he rebelled against the Lord. He sinned against him. But in God's good mercy and timing, he allows Jonah to be spared to be his messenger again. How gracious and merciful is our God. Our God is a God of second chances. Over and over again, God instructs us with his word, and time and time again we fail. But yet, each and every single time we fail, God is more than willing to give us a second chance. This is who he is. He is a God of mercy. He's a merciful God and is willing to give his people a second chance to be obedient to him. And particularly in this case, in terms of evangelism, God gives us a second chance to witness to those who we've either failed or, or allowed the opportunity to pass us when it comes to evangelism. And perhaps as some of you this morning, that you fail to obey God in showing and in, in in sharing the gospel with those in your life. God gives you mercy each and every single day. For the believer, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. When you fail or refuse to do that, it, you are, God is more than willing to give you a second chance to do it. If you are at work and you have a coworker who you've been wanting to share the gospel with, but yet fail to do it, God is still willing to allow you to share the gospel with them because you still have your job, they're still working with you. This is an opportunity for you to develop those relationships. If it's your parents, they're still around today. They're, you're still, they're still in your life and they can, you can still influence them with the gospel. This is an opportunity for you to share the gospel. If you're a parent, you have a child that's still living at home with you, see it as a joy that they're in your home and it's a privilege for you to have them so you have more opportunities to go and share and persuade them of the gospel. If you're a student, you have a classmate, you guys are still in the same campus together, you guys are still connected through your, your majors or your classes, it's still an opportunity. You still have another opportunity to go and declare the gospel to those who do not know him. God gives us a second chance to be faithful in evangelism with those that he's placed in our lives. At the same time, for those who are non-believers here today, God has given you a second chance. Every single time that you wake up without believing in Christ and you wake up alive, that is God giving you a second chance. Perhaps you may think, oh, I'm, I'm, my sin is too great, or, 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 or Christianity is not for me right now. Understand that the reason why you're still alive is because God is giving you another second chance. And some rejected Christ over and over, but yet there's still chance for them to repent. And it is not too late. God gives us a second chance to respond to his word rightly, because he is a God of mercy. Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. You notice the word arise is an imperative. It's used three times in this entire book when, when talking about Jonah. In chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. In chapter 1, verse 6, get up, call on your God. And again in chapter 3, verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah gets the same command as before. Jonah at this point has no option but to obey God. After what he went through by the disciplining hand of God, Jonah is humbled by the power and mercy of God. Some of you are like Jonah in chapter 3. You study God's word, you hear a sermon or a message, and you're convicted by the fact that you have not been faithful in evangelism. And now you're going to devote your life to go and share the good news of, of Jesus Christ to those who don't know you. Some of you are like Jonah in chapter 1. 
You know what God's word has to say. You know that God has given you non-believers in your life. And instead of going to witness to them, you refuse. You make excuses for yourself. You become apathetic. So, which Jonah are you? Are you the chapter 1 Jonah who's rebellious? Or are you Jonah 3, the one who's repentant? Now, I'm not saying that if you don't evangelize, that, it's, that you're in sin. But what I am saying is if you don't want to evangelize, it is sin. Not evangelizing is not sin, but not wanting to evangelize is sin. Whatever the reason may be, it is still sin. Jonah already learned that he cannot escape the mission of God. And Jonah must resign himself to the fact that God actually has a deep concern for this particular city. Remember, Jonah at this point is not sure how Nineveh will respond to his message. He had this finite perspective, but he lived with faith. All he knows is that he's going to a place that is very wicked, and he's, go, he's going to go there and share the God, a message of judgment to them. He has no assurance that this entire city will repent. He has no assurance that he'll even survive. Jonah no, knew of this people and their wickedness and was not sure what was going to happen to him. Perhaps we are like Jonah at times. We see certain people in the society or people in our lives, and we think this person is too wicked to be saved. Or this person is too in love with their sin to love Jesus, so we just give up. Not realizing that God can save even the worst of us. Sometimes I think that God is willing to save the worst to, get, to convict believers that God is still indeed willing to save anyone. I mean, each and every single one of us who are saved, he, he saved us. There may be people in our lives who seem callous for years and years at a time. You may think it's fruitless. And I would encourage you to not give up because God can change their heart. God can take that cold, dead, unbeating heart and change it to a warm, beating heart that is alive for him. No one in this world is beyond the saving hand of God. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. If you parallel this verse to chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see that there is a, is a complete 180. There is a, a, a drastic difference between the two. That Jonah has turned a new leaf. Chapter 1, verse 3, it says, but Jonah, meaning that he heard God's word, and instead of submitting to it, he found he did the opposite and then in chapter 3, verse 3, said, So Jonah, after God gave him a command, he did exactly what God told him to do. Chapter 1, verse 3, said, it said that Jonah flee to Tarshish. Chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah went to Nineveh. Chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah flee from the presence of God. And chapter 3, verse 3, Jonah did according to the word of the Lord. Jonah has repented. You'll notice also in this verse that there's this, the Nineveh is described as an exceedingly great city. Literally, it means a great city to God. This isn't to say that the city was so big and God was tiny, but rather that God had a, had a great affection toward the city, that he had a massive heart for those in the city. And this is maybe for, for, for you to tuck in the back of your mind, but you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 3, there's this little word, and that word is was. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. There's a little foreshadowing here that at some point after Jonah experienced all this and he wrote this down, he, he knew that although this generation is saved, the future generation will not be. We'll get to that later on down the line when we study the book of Nahum. 
but you notice that this place is the three days walk. This, the, the circumference of this place is about 60 miles, and it probably needs about three days to walk through the entire city. And to put things in perspective, San Francisco is, a, is 47 square miles, so it's, it's about 13 miles wider than that, than that of, of San Francisco. And God had used this, and it is, again, to look back in this whole entire chapter, we see his perspective. This is a really long week for Jonah. You know, he, he was called by God to go to Nineveh, and he chose not to go, and he gets and he gets on his boat, and he gets swallowed by fish afterwards, and he gets spat out, and he's going to spend the next three days sharing the gospel with everyone. So if you saw Jonah today, and you ask, and he, and you ask him, how was your week? You will have like a whole bunch of stories to tell. And you think your week is bad. Verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city's one-day walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's unique to the Old Testament that God will send someone out of Israel to go and declare a gospel of salvation. This is, this is very rare in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, you were called that they were supposed, the Israelites were supposed to stay in Israel, they will stay in their land, and they will be faithful to the Lord, uh, they will be faithful in living a life that is pleasing to him, offering sacrifices, and the Lord will bless them. And then as the Lord blesses them, both in terms of victories with other nations and, and prosperity in terms of wealth, that the other nations will look to, to Israel, they'll see Yahweh's blessing, and they'll say, this is the true God. So it is very unique that God has sent someone to go out of the land, to go and witness to these Gentiles. You notice that it's a one day's walk. It means that the first day that he got there, that he, went, that he was preaching, Jonah hit the ground running. And the message that he said was, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This is five Hebrew words. This is just five Hebrew words. He was going around saying this, yet in 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He just kept telling and preaching this message to everyone. Now, we know there's probably more than that, but this is the gist of the message. This is the theme of his message, that if these people do not repent, that in 40 days God will overthrow them. It is also implied that if they repent, that God will save them, that God will not destroy them if they turn from their sin. And the Ninevites took Jonah's message to heart. Jonah's, repentant, Jonah's repentance is received by the Ninevites. The Ninevites repented after Jonah repented of his own sin. God saves us with a purpose. And that purpose as believers is to go and make disciples of all nations. This is why uh, God left us here. That's why the church is still here. It's because we're called to go out into the world making disciples and teaching all that God has commanded. Every time when we refuse to do evangelism, it is sin. And we're not doing what God expects of us. But our God, again, is willing to give us a second chance to go and witness to those who do not know him. We're entrusted not, with, not just with the gospel or our giftedness, but we're also entrusted with the people that are in our lives. And may we be a people who, like Jonah, who repents of our apathy, our disobedience to the Lord, and our failure of evangelism. Not only can we be better evangelists when we are a repentant messenger, but the next scene that will help us be a better evangelist is a remorseful city. The next scene that will help us with our evangelism this year is to look at this remorseful city. Verse 5. 
Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. You notice that they believed in God, that their salvation came from believing in God. Jonah did not go in there and said, you need to do all these sacrificial systems. He did not say, what are the animals that you need to sacrifice? What what do you need to bring? What type of offering? He said that you need to repent. It is first a heart attitude. He told them that you need to put faith and not into the system, but in God alone. And this message compelled them to respond in faith. The message broke them, and this message spread like wildfire throughout the city. You notice it said from the greatest to the least, from those who are in high places to the lowly of low. Every single one of them in that city, from every walk of life and every social standing, turned and placed their faith in this God. And it circulated throughout the city, and eventually it got to the king. They believed in Jonah's God, and not just Jonah himself. They, they trusted in the God that Jonah was pointing him to. The focal point is not this individual Jew, but the God of this Jew. Probably one of the great, this is one of those scenes where it's probably one of the greatest revival in the Old Testament history. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And this message was eventually got to the king, and he donned sackcloth and left the throne to sit humbly in ashes, which is a Jewish posture of mourning. And the emperor of Assyrian Empire abjectly appealed for the mercy from the God on whose authority an Israelite prophet had preached. This, humble, this king was humbled. He grieved with his people. God opposes the proud, but give grace to those that are humble. And notice that this king, he arose, he laid aside, he covered, and he sat back down. The Ninevites demonstrated their brokenness by fasting and putting on sackcloth, which is a traditional way of mourning. And the Ninevites realized that they have this chance to be spared, so they did accordingly. They were just crying out to God. And this isn't some false conversion or false weeping. And this is in the New Testament, it talks about a, a godly sorrow that leads to life. This entire city repented. It is very rare that entire nation, both the great and the small society, repented from their sins. Verse 7, he issued a proclamation. The king here issued a proclamation that said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste the thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. The king's decree was something that the city was already doing. It became part of the official government policy. And the point of fasting and dressing in sackcloth was a picture of self-denial. By being uncomfortable inwardly and out, their cries are in hopes that God will give them spiritual comfort. This action was to show outwardly to God that they are truly repentant. And it was an attempt to move the heart of God and lead God to relent. And they were using every option possible, everything that they can think of to receive the mercy of God instead of the wrath of God. There's this progression from one faithful evangelist sharing the gospel individually, and it spreads throughout the city and eventually to a point where this government takes place, where everyone receives Christ, and then they, and they set a policy that is in, that's in the same line with those of our people. There are churches out there that believe that if 
a political leader or some sort of movement change the system that we can solve all of the problems in life. But the reality is that you cannot regulate morality. No matter how twisted the world is, the only way for people to change, to truly change, is not by putting some law on the land for them, but rather that it's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. It's a person understanding that their sin is first and foremost against God and that they need to live accordingly. And it's, it's only after that where, where, where society will change. John Wesley said that, that the only way for society to change is not by these systems, but by individuals who have believed in Jesus Christ. And as the entire society believes in Christ and everything that they will do will be, will be according to God's word. And oftentimes, not all the time, when people live according to God's word, there will be social justice. There will be peace. Verse 8, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. This gives us a little glimpse of what they were doing. There was an internal uh, conversion and there was an internal brokenness over their sin and, they were ex- and outwardly they were showing that as well. The inclusion of animals shows again the earnestness and, and almost desperate plea of the Ninevites. It seems unusual to require animals to wear sackcloth. It seems more unusual than, than for them to fast. It's actually more unusual for them to put on sackcloth than it is for them to fast. And, and if, you, if you realize the animals and the people were fasting, every living thing would be crying out to God. If you, if you imagine having a whole a herd of animals and you were taking food away from them so that the animals would fast, well, they will be crying. They will not understand what is going on. All they see is that their human masters are, are depriving them of food. And at the same time, the people there, all the people from the greatest elite to the children, all the adults were fasting. They were all weeping. And if you can imagine this entire city, every single one of them, every single living creature was crying out to God. This shows a genuine brokenness. And God has heard it. God hears their cry. Notice that not only did they uh, would cry out to God, but they also turn from, their, from his wicked ways. This word here indicates a general immoral behavior, and, they, and they're also turning from the violence which is in, their, in, in his hands. Nineveh, the Ninevites were, were known for their brutality. These were violent people. In their military campaigns, as they were trying to overtake other nations, when they would win a battle, oftentimes what they would do is they would skin the people alive. Another thing that they would do is that they would slaughter the children that are there. And some of them would even behead some of those people, and then they'll hang them in trees like little ornaments. These people were brutal. They, had, they showed no mercy, and they were bloodthirsty. And they weren't only just, they weren't treating the people outside of, of, of Nineveh, but they were even treating that within themselves. They, were, they, 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 they did this to their own people. These people were notorious were notorious for their savagery. But not only were they violent, were they violent people, but also the, the god that they worship. The popular god at this time in the Nineveh was Dagon, which is part man and part fish. And when I say that, don't think of like Aquaman, like the buff dude with the trident. Don't think about that. Think of it more of like how it looks more like. It's like the Starbucks logo. You know, the Starbucks is like the fish person with like an upper body of a human. That's more, that's, that's more of what Dagon looks like. And I'm not saying Starbucks is like the worshiper of the devil or anything like that. Because that's Pete's. I'm just kidding. But this is the God that they worship. They worship a half man, half fish, uh, a, a God. 
And again, Dagon is not new because he appeared in the Old Testament before. In Judges 16.23, it was the story of Samson, right? You remember Samson and and Delilah. He was a strong man. God will use him to deliver Israel. But he was disobedient, and he gave himself over to his own sinful desires. And when he was captured, he he was chained between these two pillars. And the reason why he was chained according to Judges 16.23, wasn't because he was just supposed to be displayed, like, oh, we got the, the Israelite. No, he was chained because he was supposed to be sacrificed to Dagon. They were eventually going to go up to him and, 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 and gut him in front of everyone, and there was a rejoice over the death of Samson. But we know that that's not what happened. Samson cried out to the Lord. He repented. He pulled the pillars, and eventually all those worshipers died. Dagon again appeared in 1 Samuel chapter 5. You recall that the, Israel, that the, the Israelites lost the, ta- uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it in front of Dagon, thinking that, oh, see, the, uh, Dagon is over the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. But then the next day, they see that Dagon turned, uh, fell over and bowing to the Ark, and later put the, they put Dagon back up, and then the next day, Dagon was butchered in front of the Ark. And then, and then they got scared, so they got rid of the Ark. Dagon was known as a god among a pantheon of other gods. In fact, one of the nicknames of Dagon was the Lord of Gods which is reserved for Yahweh. Dagon was seen as, the, as like the god of futility. In some ways, he was like the father of Baal. And the Ninevites worship Dagon, knowing that Dagon has lost to Yahweh multiple times in the past. They kept on going back to this god that has failed them. Isn't this the same as the world that we live in? People, instead of repenting of their sin, decide to go back into their sin. They, go back, they, they, they fall into sin, and instead of turning to God, they just go back into their sin. And if you can imagine when Jonah gets this message from God to go and witness to them, he's going to the place where people were brutal, they were, they were violent people, and they worshipped this false god. Jonah looked at these people, and he looked down on them because these people were foolish in his eyes. How can these people who have, whose, whose God has failed them over and over again in the past and still living in disobedience deserve God's mercy. But yet, God is merciful. In fact, at the very last verse of this book, God tells them that, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, so as many animals. This people, this group of people, were so debauched that they they didn't know the difference between right and wrong. But if we are to think accurately about ourselves, we too are like this. Before we came to know the Lord, before we came to know Christ, we too had our own idols. We worshiped things that was less than God, and we tried to elevate the things in our lives higher than the true God. We were blinded to our sin, but yet God in his mercy opened our eyes and made us realize that we have sinned against him, and that caused remorse in our life so that we can turn from our sin and place our faith in the true God. It should compel us when we realize that God is willing to save, and he saved us first. It should give us a humble, a humble demeanor when we go and share the gospel, that we're not looking down on other people who don't know Christ. Rather, there's a type of compassion because we understand that we were in the same state at one point in the past. On a side note, it is interesting to note that the Ninevites worshipped this fish man god, but their true salvation came from a man that was swallowed by a fish. This whole book has a whole bunch of fishy situations. 
And the Ninevites confessed every single one of their sins and they repented of their ways. And perhaps there's some of you today here who have not turned, who do not know Christ because you want to have salvation, but you want to hold on to your own sin. But you can't have Christ if you're holding on to your sin. You must admit that every aspect of you has sinned against God. Every fiber of you is an offense to the Lord. I mean, the most obvious one is that you do not love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. You don't love others as yourself. In fact, in Romans 14, 23, it tells us that if you do anything without faith, it is sin. So every single thing that you do without faith is sin. You may be alive in light of your own sin, but it's only because of God's mercy that you are alive today. God is not loose on sin, but he is great on mercy. Verse 9. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. The king here is saying that perhaps God will see all of their actions, all of their crying, and maybe that he will turn from his judgments. And he hoped that God will sway from his wrath. This king understands that he and the entire nation are under the mercies of God. The entire nation realized that if God was to just, just rain fire onto us, it is perfectly just. And in a lot of ways, they were, what they were doing is, is a sign of saying, like, Lord, the ball is in your court. You do what you believe is best, but we are crying out to you. There is nothing else that they can do, and they have, there's nothing they can offer to God. Again, this, this sounds familiar in, in verse 9 because the captain in chapter 1, verse 6, says something similar. He said, uh, get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. The captain was hoping for a present peril to be removed if Jonah would cry out to his God and his God might take notice, whereas this king was hoping for an anticipated judgment from God would be taken back. What this king did not know was that God indeed noticed their brokenness. He noticed their sorrow. He noticed their pain, and he would gladly execute his mercy and grace instead of executing his wrath. Our God saves all even when we aren't passionate about those that are, that are lost. I think if you were to be honest in our lives, there are, there are like different tiers of people uh, that we want to know Christ. There's like probably our family, that we want the immediate family to know Christ, maybe then the extended family, and then afterwards our, our friends and then our coworkers, and kind of branch out. There's like a tier system. Um, but that's not like that with our Lord. Our Lord desires that each and every single one of them will be saved. His heart for all of them are equal. God is not a respecter of men. He doesn't like one more than the other. He has a, a consistent heart for all those who do not know him. Our God desires that none perish. And if we want to be more like our Savior, if we want to be more like our God, then we must have a desire for all to be saved. One of the greatest aspect of this narrative is that we, you realize that each and every single one of the people in this city is going to be in heaven with us one day. Each and every single one of those that at one point were butchering people, were skinning people, beheading people, these people will be in heaven with, with us one day because of their faith in God. What a joy it is for us to be able to one day in the future fellowship with these people. These, these wicked, at one point wicked people, they're now saints. And whenever someone comes to know the Lord, it should bring us great joy. When we read this narrative, this part where people are turning from their sin, it should bring us a tremendous amount of joy. And that should be a driving force for our evangelism. When we see people 
broken over their sin and coming to no faith and, and turning away from their self-righteousness and placing their faith in Christ, trusting in his righteousness and not their own, that should bring us great joy. And that should continue to motivate us in our lives to go and share the gospel with those who do not know him. If we want to fulfill the Great Commission well, we need to ask ourselves this question. Does seeing other people in heaven bring us joy? Luke 15, 10 tells us that when one person comes in saving faith, that all the angels in heaven rejoice. Not only can we be a better evangelist by seeing a repentant messenger in Jonah or a remorseful city in Nineveh, but lastly, the last scene that will help us with our evangelism is that we see a relenting God. The last thing that will help us with our, our, of our gospel presentation and our boldness to go and share the gospel is to see a relenting God. Verse 10, but when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, they turn, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This verse shows us God's mercy. This word relent here, God relented. This, another way to translate this word relent is the word repent. Repent. Uh, is, a, is a neutral term. It basically just means to turn away from something. And oftentimes when we use the word repent, we think of, of sin, right? You, this person's turning away from sin. But in reality, it's just a neutral term. It means you're turning away from a certain direction. And in God's case, he turned away from his wrath. And this again brings up some theological questions. Jonah repented, the Ninevites repented, and now God repented. And as they turned from their evil, God turned from pouring out his wrath onto the Ninevites for their evil. God repented from his judgment on this generation. So it brings this question, how does this mean that God did not know that Nineveh would, would repent? Or if, if God is sovereign, why would he need to repent? And you understand, this is anthropomorphic language. This is language that helps us understand something better. It's a language of appearance. It's language of accommodation from the viewpoint of mankind. It's supposed to help us understand something about God that we would not be able to understand without. This is, this is again, not the first time that God is described in this way. 1 Samuel 15.35, God re re regretted making Saul king. This isn't to say that God somehow did not know that Saul was going to be a terrible king. But from the writers of 1 Samuel, he saw how God responded to, to Saul, and he was thinking the closest word that can, that can describe what God is doing is regret. This highlights the disappointment that God had in Saul. Another example is whenever we read in Psalms, we talk about how God has hands and feet. God is spirit. He doesn't have like, physical hands and feet in the way we think about it. But it's, it's intended for us to understand him. It's intended for us to understand him more. Anthropomorphic language helps us know God better. And in this case, the relenting or repenting of God shows his mercy. God's repenting of his wrath is seemingly repent towards the Ninevites' repentance. It's to show us that our God is, made, is willing to save those who cry out to him. Our God is more than willing to repent of his wrath if you repent from your sin. We also need to know that in human terms, God's mercy is conditional to our faith in him. Yes, I know that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. God doesn't change his mind. God's not uh, influenced by anyone. There's no one that can, that can plan things out that God doesn't know. But that does not neglect our responsibility. 
When God claims that he is merciful to those who believe, the condition is that we are willing to place our faith in him so that he removes his wrath. The Bible teaches both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And how that works out is not something that we need to figure out. All that we need to know is that the Bible teaches us that we need to take ownership of how we respond to God and his word. If you believe in God, you will be saved. And if you reject God, you will be judged. Our God is not some crazed, uh, rage, angry deity that does not have, give hope to those that are, that are his subjects. Rather, our God is merciful. And if we place our faith in him, it is just faith that he will turn from his wrath. Other religions and other, de- other gods, there's always something that you need to do in order for God to save you. Not our God. Our God is willing to give his mercy if we place our faith in him. So all that we need to do when we proclaim the gospel to non-believers is to trust in Jesus Christ in faith. Because our God is a compassionate God. He is always sensitive to those that cry out to him in, for mercy. We see in this passage another evidence that God does not desire the destruction of sinners, but, ra- but rather he, he longed for the redemption and reconciliation of all those who are made in his image. So how can we apply this into our lives? Knowing our God will relent his wrath should make us thankful that he relented his wrath towards us. And he's willing to, to, to relent his wrath on all sinners who, who's willing to receive his mercy. And our God is willing to relent. But how can he relent if sinners never hear of the gospel? Our mission is to be heralds of the gospel and go and declare his mercy. In these three scenes, we see how God uses his people to save others. God uses his people who are oftentimes need to repent of the refusal or the apathy to evangelism to declare the coming judgment to sinners in hopes that they will be remorseful over the sin so that God will turn and relent from his wrath that, that was initially intended for sinners. Paul Rader was an evangelist in the early 20th century. Uh, he was a pastor, and he also had a radio ministry in Chicago. Uh, oftentimes, he would preach on Sundays, and throughout the week, he would preach as well on the radio. And he would even call believers that are listening to the radio program to, do, uh, to go and make more disciples, to go and do good deeds so that people can see your works. And he had a friend that was from New York that did not know the Lord. And over time and time again, he would share the gospel with them. He would say, you need to know Jesus. You need to repent. You need to place your faith in Jesus. Over and over and over again, his friend would deny it. He would say, no, this is not for me. I'm good. Thank you. No, thanks. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. And at some point, his friend and him just went on their separate ways, and he went back to New York while uh, Paul Rader stayed in Chicago to minister to people there. And one day, he felt the Lord move him to go and see his friend. This is around the 1920s and 30s, so he went to buy a, a, a train ticket. He took a, a train to go all the way to New York, and he found his friend, and he met him in his, in his doorway. And he saw his friend, his friend looked at him and said, Oh, hey, Paul, I was just going to write to you. I was going to write a telegram to send you to come over. But Paul responded, No need, because God has ordained this to happen. And again, in front of his doorstep, he shared the gospel with him again. He told him that you need Jesus Christ, that you need to place your faith in him or you're going to suffer the wrath of God. His friend saw this, and he, he was moved by his passion. 
he's moved that this, this friend of his, this pastor friend, willing to take the time and the effort to, to make this journey to go and share the gospel to him, a gospel that he's rejected many times before. But, but, but by God's grace, he was saved on that day. But the story does, doesn't end there. In fact, the story ends seconds later because right after he received Christ, Paul said that his friend gasped and fell into his arms and died. If Paul Rader refused to go onto that train, his friend would have died in that doorway, not knowing Jesus Christ. But because of what Paul Rader did in terms of going out and sharing the gospel, this person literally accepted Christ and then seconds later met his maker. Some of you are like Paul Rader. You're going to have people in your lives that you're, you're sharing the gospel with over and over and over again, and they're going to deny it over and over and again. And I would encourage you to not give up, to not lose hope, to keep at it, to keep going and sharing the gospel, keep praying for them and looking for opportunities for them to know Jesus Christ. Don't give up on them. There is always hope. Some of you are like Paul's friend. You have rejected the gospel over and over and over again. And understand that just like Paul's friend who did not know that when he was walking out that door that he was going to die, so it is with you. If you I, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I can say this, that there are two realities. Right now, at this very moment, you've, you've, you've heard the gospel preached multiple times. And the other thing is that at some point you will die. And, it, and, rea- and at some point, both of these realities will clash. Either you've, you've died with or without Christ. And I hope that if you have not received Jesus today, that you will turn from your sin that you understand that God is merciful to saving you now. You just might have spent your entire life running from the Lord, but you're here today, and it's by God's grace that you are here. And I hope that you will turn from your sin and place your faith in this merciful God. And for us as believers, may we be like Jonah, who's just faithful and doing what God has told us, even when we fall short, that God is merciful in giving us a second chance to go and win the loss to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word and the privilege that you've given us to be able to know more about who you are. Um, your word is revealed to us so that we may know you and may know how we can live in such a way that is pleasing to you. Lord, we ask that um, for us, through our believers, that this week, um, that we're mindful of those in our lives, whether it be our neighbors or coworkers or family and friends who do not know you, that, that we have a heart for them the way that you do. Uh, may, may our heart grow in our love for you and our heart continue to increase in our love for those who do not know you. Uh, make us bold in our evangelism. And give us the right words to say and the opportunities to go and share uh, the gospel to them. Lord, we, for those who do not know you, or who, are, who are here, who have not placed their faith in you, I pray that you can soften their hearts uh, to see how merciful God you are, that you withhold judgment for a time so that they can turn and repent so you too can repent from the judgment that's meant for them. Be with us this week. Uh, may we be faithful in all that we do. We, we thank you. In your son's name I pray. Amen.